Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Stephen. I'm Anoush. And I'm Alva. And on this week's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the Grenfell scandal four years on, and you ask us, what is Boris Johnson's endgame for the Northern Ireland Protocol? We're recording on the fourth anniversary of the Grenfell Tower fire. Of course, the deadliest domestic fire since the Blitz. And inquiries, of course, still ongoing, as are various other means to seek justice. It's an issue that is very important to us as a publication. Anusha's written a very good piece that you should be able to read. So we wanted to talk a bit about, it's one of those things I always struggle to, well, whether or not to refer to it as a tragedy or to refer to it as a scandal. And as, as the person who's, who's led up most of our coverage on the Grenfell Tower scandal, if you could first sort of give us an update of, of where we currently are on it. Basically, the issue I think that is most pressing on four years on is that there are so many people, and actually the big scandal I think is that the government doesn't actually know how many people um, living in flats that are in buildings that have A, the ACM cladding that uh, Grenfell had on it, but also other fire safety defects that have become apparent through the revelations of the inquiry. So, you know, the way that these cladding and insulation systems are, are installed, missing cavity breaks and fire stops, timber balconies that can set alight. Um, and other kind of building and material defects that mean that these buildings are at risk of fire. The government has been keeping tabs on the number of tower blocks that are above 18 metres that have the ACM cladding. And, you know, they have been working through fixing those and removing the cladding. But actually, there are still a number of them that are still um, still standing with people living in them. The latest figures show 107 buildings in England still fit this description. I mean, I just think that is 107, way too many, um, given that we're four years on from the fire. Um, but then there's all of these other buildings that have been found to be fire unsafe through the revelations of what went wrong at Grenfell and the way that building regulations um, haven't actually made these buildings safe and the way that they've actually been built or the, the way they've been refurbished has made them unsafe. And we don't, we just don't know how many people are living in that scenario, but it is thought that it's over a million which is really terrifying when you think that actually in May, when, when we were all covering the um, fallout of the local elections on the 7th of May on that Friday morning, there was actually a fire in an over 18 metre building clad in, in, in dangerous cladding in New Providence Wharf in East London. 
And I actually interviewed um, one of the people who had to escape from that fire from the 14th floor for this piece. And he was, mm. his, his, you could just see in his eyes, like I went to go and visit him at the building. He, he was just baffled. He was like, why are my family, he's got three young daughters, um, age 10 and under. He was like, why are they in danger of a fire four years on from Grenfell from the same you know, from the same material defect on the building. He just couldn't understand it. And his theory was that the government just do not care enough. He was talking about the coronavirus funding and the response. And, you know, he was saying they were throwing funding at at individuals and also corporations to help them through that crisis. This is a crisis. Why couldn't they do that for this? And I think that's, to me, that's the biggest thing about the Grenfell legacy. Of course, you know, the, 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 the grieving of the the families of the bereaved and the victims aside, which is that this should be, the cladding crisis should be the biggest scandal, I think, of the year. And of course, the pandemic has kind of overshadowed that. I think that the secondary nature of the cladding crisis and the Grenfell legacy started before the um, the pandemic. It's always been overshadowed. I mean, I remember, I think I told you guys this at the time, and I won't mention the name of the program but I remember the TV producer once saying oh we'll do Grenfell as an icebreaker you know it's always seen as secondary it's never taken as seriously as it should be and some people that I interviewed who are trapped in these flats because there's a whole issue with being a leaseholder and not being able to um, afford the costs of making them safer Um, some of the people were saying who I spoke to I think it's going to take another fatal fire for these buildings to actually be made safe and for the government and all the builders all the developers to take responsibility for the costs because the costs are one of the big um sticking points in the whole scandal the the last time that we were talking about this at some point earlier i think it, at the point i can't remember which month it was but at the point where the government made its announcement that it would be replacing flammable cladding on buildings above 18 meters but not below i didn't actually realize that i live in a flat with the same insulation as grenfell which isn't fire safe Mm. And as well as the fact that thanks to just lots of very interesting and well-informed and friendly readers of Morning Call, we hear loads of testimonies. If you ever write about Grenfell um, and the cladding crisis, lots and lots of people from really, really different backgrounds from all across the UK get in touch to talk about like fire safety issues in their building. But yeah, I didn't realise that it also applies to me and Maybe it is more concentrated in London in terms of the kinds of flat buildings that people tend to live in. But there's so many people that, that we work with or that we know who are also in that boat. It's strange. It's, it's, I, I, I'm just as baffled as you are, really, Anush, that, that it's so difficult to, to put this very high up the agenda when this, this crisis was brought to the fore by a, a very, very prominent tragedy. So you know, in the wake of it, it just shouldn't be an issue trying to resolve the issues four years on. And politically, it should be as well. There was a Tory Mm. backbench rebellion on the fire safety bill of 31 MPs, which is not insignificant. Um, And it affects, you know, like you were talking about your own flat. It's difficult, I think, to have a conversation these days without about housing without someone mentioning someone who is in a dangerous building. Um, And it Mm. affects all sorts of people, you know, it's not I mean, there was a there was this sort of perception around Grenfell that it was um, people who are on the lowest incomes and have the sort of like, you know, the least voice in society who were the most impacted. But actually, lots of people live in these buildings who Conservative MPs fear they need, you know, as the, as their voter base, people who have used help to buy shared ownership schemes, 
young families who want to upsize, first-time buyers, retirees who don't want to live in a high-rise anymore, people that the Conservative Party, well, there are Conservative MPs who fear that they might might lose their support. Um, and one Tory MP who, who um, I was speaking to for the piece made the point to me, he was like, my colleagues should know what it's like because lots of MPs stay in flats like these so, so they can be near Westminster during the week. Mm. So it's not even a case of Tory government ministers have no idea what it's like to live in these sort of you know, godforsaken tower blocks and they've never been to them and don't understand them. It's not like that at all. You know, I met people who were sort of working in professional jobs and used to, you know, support the Conservative Party. And I think it could have real political consequences. It, this this means inevitably when we've discussed Grenfell, I can do my grumble about a certain type of commentary which talks about, you know, the people in Grenfell died because they were poor. But loads of them weren't poor. You did a very good listing of the various housing policies that people affected by this scandal uh, benefit from Conservative government. But there's another big one, which is right to buy, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people who you know, are you know, hugely grateful to the Conservative Party still because of that policy are directly or indirectly caught um, by this scandal. And I think it's partly it's, it's a way that various uh, Labour people excuse make about the fact they haven't managed to get headway on it. Is they go, oh, well, you know, the, the, the problem is, is that the Conservatives don't care about the poor. And it's just like, that just isn't an accurate description of the people who died in the original tragedy and are caught in the, you know, the overarching scandal. Just not an accurate description. Oh, people are, oh, well, they only care because it's, yeah, they don't care because it's our voters. Again, not true. I do think there's a slight issue than it's marginal voters in the wrong place, as it were. Yeah, I was speaking to a, one of the Conservative MPs who has been campaigning on this very strongly. They, they're, One of their theories and one of their big complaints about the direction of their party in general is they said we the, the party has memed itself into thinking, um, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, memed itself into thinking, oh, those votes in the South don't matter, they're all non-people. And they said, and actually this is particularly acute for our councillors, because you have someone where they go, oh, well, OK, those 400 people were actually fairly reliable Tory voters for me in my ward, and now they're really not. You see this in some of the big switch wards in um, the London mayoral race, right? But there are okay small patches of places where you go, oh, wow, why did those people, you know, why did they, why did they become much less attractive to the Conservative Party? And the answer is they are directly affected by the cladding scandal. I suspect one of the issues is that the millions of people who are affected by this scandal, one, don't think of themselves as a class. And now, I'll just have because they're not. You know, it, it's harder to annoy a group of voters if they see something and go, oh, that relates to me. I guess the uh, the other, the flip side of it is, you know, those people who were very happy to vote for £12 billion of welfare cuts. And then in the 2015 to 16 period, any time the, the government actually went near any of the actual stuff they would have had to do to deliver it, but parts of their electoral coalition went, wait a second, the money you give me is welfare? And I think part of the problem is that lots of people don't realise they're affected by this scandal who are affected by it directly. Even more people who are affected by it indirectly don't realise they are affected by it indirectly. Very selfish and deeply unsympathetic uh, example, right? I uh, live in and 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 own uh, an ex well, a very very small part of equity in a, an ex council flat that was right to bought before we bought it, which means that we're only mildly evil. And I anticipate that it, that if we wanted to remortgage it or we wanted to sell it, we would discover that the banks were in general nervous about mortgages on 
ex-council flats and in towers i the kind of place we would what we might move to anyway and this is why i think you're right and you should think that actually there is a bigger political hangover coming over the gate if as we as i think it's probably likely this parliament runs um until the summer of 2023 or the the spring of 2024 is the the thing you really notice about people who know they're affected by it is they are understandably really angry with the government. I think one of the things which would worry me, and I think that group of 31 Conservatives are right to believe they need to get a grip on this, is that if, if I were sort of plotting the path to retaining this majority, I'd be going, okay, well, what if X number of people in that group want to remortgage or want to have a second child or want to do X, Y, Z? And I, I think this is the thing is that it's a scandal which affects a lot of people, but but like a lot of sort of complex government failings, um, we aren't yet at the stage where someone's actually opened their poll tax bill and gone, wait, what? We aren't at the stage where someone's looked at their first tax um, statement after the uh, abolition of the 10p tax rate and gone, uh, WTF. But yeah, I think the person you choose is 100% right, right? Then the, the problem is, is that although there are you know plenty of MPs and even some ministers who do get and they need to get a grip on this as an issue, the mm-hmm. overarching idea of who votes Conservative and who is affected by this scandal is a kind of caricature and it's basically Labour voters in social housing and, you know, and, you know, metropolitan liberals in, in, in lovely new build towers. And they basically go, not our electorate, not our problem. That's not true. It is their electorate. It is their problem. I, I, I think I wrote once that, you know, every day I become angrier and angrier. And then every anniversary, I kind of get another sort of top up of anger. But I think for me, at least one of the reasons why I'm st- so angry about it is just this complete refusal to take it as seriously as it should be taken. But what do you think, Anoush, about why it isn't? What do you think the cause of it not being a big thing? I think you're right that people are discovering this slowly. A bit like Alva said, she didn't realise, you know, until the 11 metre to 18 metre buildings were brought into this discussion that she also lived in a building that that isn't safe. It, people are discovering it as they go along, particularly as they think, oh, actually, I'd, maybe we should have another child. Maybe we should um, move to a bigger flat. Let's put our flat on the market. Oh, it's worth, as one family that I went to go and interview in Birmingham found, it's worth zero pounds now. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. people are discovering this as they go along, as they decide that they want to change housing. It's not It's not that they're watching the news um, and watching, you know, clips of the, the Grenfell fire on an anniversary and thinking, oh, that's us. They're discovering as they go along trying to live their lives. And that's why I think you're right that there will be a, a long hangover and a long build up. But just because it's slowly unfolding in people's minds and that they they haven't had a mass realisation as a, as a class or as a sort of body of voters in a traditional sense doesn't mean that it's not going to cause big problems down the line. I mean, the, the Bank of England have been trying to work out whether it could cause financial collapse. So <laughs> I think because there's been so much going on, I think it's been underestimated by the media. Ministers in general seem to have been quite dismissive about it and complacent on the issue. But Conservative MPs, I'd say sort of a significant enough number of them have got wise to how bad this is. And they're, and there's, they're planning another rebellion down the line as well. There's, there's more legislation coming called the Building Safety Bill. And they're going to try and attach their amendment, trying to protect leaseholders onto that one as well. So I think it will just build and build. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And now it's time for a section we like to call. You ask us. So this is from Tristan S. Thanks for writing in. How are the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Lord Frost hoping this latest dispute with the EU will play out? So I assume he is referring to um, the various conversations about the Northern Ireland Protocol over the G7. Um, You two were following this. Stephen, how do you think they're thinking or hoping it will play out? So I guess candidly, I'm not convinced that there is very much joined up thinking about how this will play out, right? Because I think the central issue is that this government at a political level, yeah, the sort of, you know, the kind of Frost Johnson position, would, I think, not mind if the border on the island of Ireland got a bit thicker. The problem is, is, of course, everyone else would. Um, The Irish government would mind. The American government would mind. Various of our other trading partners would mind. And then, of course, because the Irish government would mind, the the edifice of the EU, particularly in the last stage when every state was a veto player, um, had to mind as well. When you speak to some people in sort of in the Harp Downing Street, they kind of have this idea that, oh, you know, well, we could just have trusted traders and, you know, kind of, I, I you basically go, oh, well, it's fine because we all understand that Sainsbury's is not going to become a backdoor into the single market because they're a big supermarket. They have too much to lose. You know, they, they'd follow the rules, right? So basically you have big supermarkets, you know, kind of opt-outs for the provision of healthcare, and then that sort of gets you most of the way, and then some kind of agreement that you go, hey, we both have really high standards of agri-food, um, so let's just accept this and move on. Now, of those three parts, I-, I think the first two are doable, but they don't actually fix the problem. The third one is not doable and also wouldn't actually, because I think the, the, the underlying problem that than this Downing Street still has with this issue. And Alvar, I, I obviously, you know, jump in and tell me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong here, which is that they primarily see the problems of the protocol as the eye-catching stuff of someone goes to a supermarket, you know, in Fermanagh, and they go, oh, where are my taste different sausages? I'm alienated from the political settlement as a result. <laughs> um, with, and the thing is, right, you actually... If that was the problem, you, you could fix that, right? Then that the, the sort of things I, I the two things it would do would would fix that issue, right? Ditto though they think then the political problem is someone goes, Oh, but my aunt Beryl in on the Wirral, she can get this medicine and I can't get it and it's not licensed here, which I mean, again, right, health is devolved across the United Kingdom. Um the health service in Northern Ireland does actually work quite differently to everywhere else, not least because it's actually the only bit where social care is semi-properly integrated into the structure, right? So, no, that's not 
the underlying issue is actually the the stuff than the kind of the frost apt opt outs don't sort of leave standing which is that if you are you know a small business or a family farm or you know basically if you're any small business run by uh, anyone in northern ireland it's just more viable for you to trade um north south and east west and guess what if you're a unionist that is painful politically dislo- um, dislocating to you and adding to the general feeling among some young primarily <clears throat> unionist men and in many ways they're the kind of the kind of man who is, is is being particularly badly served by the changes in the global economy anyway, but in the specific context of Northern Ireland and the protocol, it gets mixed in with a bunch of other political stuff. It just doesn't fix any of those problems. But I think that is fair to say that their end state is basically something a bit like that. But it's also failing that. It's the kind of, if I make enough noise, then someone will will save me from the mess I have created for myself. Um, because they've obviously ruled out the backstop. They don't want a Swiss-style phytosanitary standards agreement. Um, and that does mean that whatever you do, you are left with this thicker border in the Irish Sea or a prolonged trade war, which we wouldn't want either, um, even uh, even allowing for the fact that in terms of the aims of British British policy, you know, since at the absolute latest 1987, we don't want a hard border on the island of Ireland either. Yeah, I feel like this is a, a quite difficult question. <laughs> the kind of question that just makes me feel really bad at my job. <laughs> I think that I think that the answer to it is that basically basically what Stephen was saying that the problem with answering it is that probably they don't know exactly how this will play out or even what the best case scenario would be. I think probably with a lot of things it's sort of worth separating the rhetoric from the reality. Like clearly in terms of the the way they want the rhetoric to play out, it, they just always want it to to be a narrative of the UK standing its ground, standing up to the EU being unreasonable, making, you know, reiterating this threat of triggering Article 16 to suspend the protocol, that, you know, that all they want is a narrative in which the UK never capitulates. Then in terms of the reality, I still don't think that there is much political will to suspend Article 16. When the EU sort of accidentally did that during the vaccine dispute, that was that a moment of serious panic in Northern Ireland, across the island of Ireland. Internationally, there was panic about it. I mean, it's not something that you would ever rule out with Boris Johnson's government, but I think that there's probably not that much will there. It's the on the level of reality, I think it's quite revealing something that Boris Johnson said, where he said, you know, he was looking for urgent and innovative solutions. I think that <laughs> I think that means that they just want to find small technical ways of making the protocol work because it is a kind of quite technical trade dispute. And beyond the sort of the bigger idea of like complete alignment with the EU and phytosanitary standards or whatever it would be, I think that probably someone with more of a, of a trading mind would be able to identify areas where there could be smaller compromises and the protocol could function a little bit more smoothly, which is definitely what the Irish government, the EU, nationalist and unaligned politicians in Northern Ireland all want. And then ultimately, unionist politicians don't like the protocol. But if the option is not having it and, you know, having a border on the island of Ireland, massive difficulties, 
or just being able to make it work a bit better. I think that there are certainly plenty of unionist politicians who wouldn't even be, want that and just want rid of the protocol. But I think privately they all kind of accept that you can't get rid of it. And so really everyone just wants to find a way to make it work. So I think it is actually the the innovative solutions <laughs> that, that really is all Boris Johnson is hoping for, along with this impression globally that he is being tough and that the EU is being unreasonable. Um, as long as they can maintain the rhetoric, I think the reality is that, that everyone wants the border protocol to work, wants mm. the protocol to work. But even with all the toing and froing, and if they managed to come to some sort of small series of compromises and they did manage to reach Boris Johnson's mythical, innovative solutions at some stage. Well, I mean, we, we've been working on this piece about the way that Brexit has affected um, food and food culture mm. and our diets in this country, um, which is due to come out um, in about a month's time. But the people that we've been speaking to have been saying, we went to Covent Garden, the new Covent Garden veg market um, last week, and they were saying that they used to send, you know, pallets and pallets of uh, fresh produce over to Northern Ireland. They didn't even count, you know, Northern Ireland as an export market because it, it is the United Kingdom. But th now they send zero. And so I think mm -hmm. while there's all this toing and froing and, you know, uncertainty, it's definitely the uncertainty that affects the businesses most, the more likely it is Northern Ireland is going to start getting the produce that it used to get from this, you know, individual <laughs> grower or food producer in the UK or, or, or from Britain from Ireland um, and so yeah. the process is happening organically if you if you like um, even if yeah. those longed for solutions are found and I wonder how much that will affect because you know this this does come down well according to the rhetoric of the politicians on all sides who are speaking about it it comes down to peace in Northern Ireland, and we've seen tensions there already. So I wonder what, how you think that sort of organic process is, is affecting the way that people feel about the the border already. I mean, we're coming to summer when there are fears that there are often increased fears of of, of rioting. I don't know how yeah. you feel about that, Alva. I think that that is one hundred percent the most important point. That clearly, I think there will be a way to make the protocol a bit less annoying and you know for there to be a little bit less friction in a way that reduces negative headlines that keeps unionist politicians a bit happier eventually there clearly some sort of solution can be found but the bigger problem that you're speaking about Anush I think is just the most important thing because there's no way that the protocol won't mean that the economy of Northern Ireland gradually reorients towards the Republic of Ireland and towards the EU. There's just no way because on a practical level, it just makes more sense for most businesses. So I actually can't, I don't know what the latest update is on the, on the Percy Pigs situation, but as we've mentioned before, in the dark days right after Brexit, um, you couldn't get Percy Pigs in the M&S in Northern Ireland. I don't know how they've solved it temporarily, but if you take an example like that, clearly, given the way checks are conducted and so on, it would make sense for Marks and Spencer, which also operates in the Republic of Ireland. It also has branches in Paris, as as, as fans of MS when they are abroad will know. It kind of makes sense, or certainly you would imagine it would make sense for a shop like Marks and Spencer to supply 
shops in Northern Ireland via the Republic of Ireland route rather than through the UK. And so there, I mean, that's a sort of tiny example, but it just makes, it clearly is a broader pattern where economically Northern Ireland will be facing the Republic and the EU more and more because of all these little difficulties, as you were saying, and which probably won't completely change even with a smoother protocol. And I think that that was really the big anxiety that we were seeing being played out during that big spate of violence a few months ago. And also, you know, what we have been hearing from unionist politicians. It is this anxiety that, you know, it's it's certainly not helped by Sinn Féin calling for a border poll and saying that those conversations need to happen and actually a growing feeling in Northern Ireland that maybe the beginnings of of that conversation do need to happen even on the unionist side that everyone wants to be prepared to have a constructive conversation around that and you know there are think tanks being set up to do research into sort of the key groups of voters who would who who would be pivotal pivotal in deciding a border poll and so I just think even I was speaking to a Labour politician about this a few months ago and they said, you know, quite casually, oh, you know, eventually there's just going to be United Ireland within the next decade or two. And I was very surprised <laughs> that this person said that so cavalierly. Um, and I mean, who knows whether that is the consensus um, among Labour politicians quietly or if they're an outlier, but I, I found that really striking. And I think that that is ultimately the big anxiety among unionists and people talk about it being the protocol but it's it's more the the wider climate in Mm. Northern Ireland at the moment and all these other things around Brexit and the demographic changes there that that just mean that there's this feeling that that's where Northern Ireland is headed and it is just creating instability and I think you're right that around um, the 12th of July that could be a moment where people even if it's just that on the bonfires you see signs about the the you know no to the Irish Sea border. I mean, I, I completely I, I predict that now. I don't think that would be very surprising. But you know, I think that probably there will be manifestations of people annoy people's annoyance with it. I think it has been improved paradoxically by the change of DUP leadership. That at least the DUP leadership, even if it's not going to do anything about it, is at least more vocally opposed to the protocol so those people who have a grievance with it feel like they have political representation Mm. still I think that 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 underlying anxiety is just not going to go away you've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me Stephen Bush my colleague Anusha Kellyan and our political correspondent Alva Ray our music is Devil by the Devil licensed under Creative Commons we're produced and recorded by Chris Stone If you've been enjoying the New Statesman podcast, please don't forget to like and subscribe on your podcatcher. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.